0: My new book, How Minds Change, is out now. And you can find a link in this episode's show notes right there in your podcast player to the homepage for How Minds Change, where you can find a roundtable video with a group of persuasion experts that I moderated. All those people are featured in the book. You can read a sample chapter, download a discussion guide, sign up for the newsletter, read reviews. And if you scroll to the bottom, you'll find links to all the mini- many podcasts and YouTube channels. I've been appearing on telling everyone all about it. Oh oh yes, there's also a contest. I'm doing a contest to promote the book. The day after this podcast comes out, I'll be announcing it. So look for that on all my social media. And please, just keep posting photos and adding me and telling me all your thoughts about it. I love it. I'll keep responding and retweeting and resharing and so on. How Minds Change. Out now. Link in the show notes. the middle of the they welcome to the you are not so smart podcast episode 237 <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Oh, wow. What time is it in your neck of the woods?
1: Um, so I'm actually in Belgium, in Europe. So it's 2.30.
0: Uh, That's the voice of Michelle Below, a professor of economics at Cornell whose specialty is behavioral economics. And she and her team recently published some new research into how to reduce polarization in the United States. In fact, the title of the paper is Bridging America's Divide on Abortion, Guns, and Immigration, an Experimental Study. And by recently, I mean this is fresh off the presses. In fact, Below sent me an email the week that my new book, How Minds Change, came out to tell me that their new paper had also just come out that week. And it added something new to the book. And it directly addressed the recent supreme court decision overturning roe versus wade and i might be interested in hearing more about all that and that you might be interested in hearing about it too so the very next day we met on zoom to dig into it
1: no, thank you it's really fantastic i mean i i came across your you know your book and your uh, your podcast and i thought well maybe you might be interested in our work so it's
0: <laughs> yeah Yeah, definitely very fascinated with this paper. It's a great addition to how minds change. So if you've already read the book, you are reading the book, this is a great sort of bonus episode to add to that material. Thank you so much, Michelle below for saying, hey, you should add this to your show to the book to everything. So I want to get into some of the things that the paper covers the foundational material so we can understand why it's so important. And I'm going to do that now. I think we need a music cue because I'm going to talk for a good bit about some psychology stuff. So let's bring that in. Okay, cool. Always feels better when there's a music bed underneath a lot of talking. This paper has a lot of concepts that you've heard about on this show that are prominently featured in how minds change, like Tajfel's minimal group paradigm, Allport's contact hypothesis, and a phenomenon known in psychology as reactants. To remind you or introduce you to these ideas, Let's start with Tajfel's Minimal Group Paradigm. This, you may recall, comes from the work of Henri Tajfel. Uh, Liliana Mason is the person who brought this into the show on episodes 122, 133, and 209. You can go into deep dives on all this. But here's the idea. The minimal group paradigm is a very robust and much replicated finding in psychology. And the finding is that people will form groups over anything, no matter how small, no matter how inconsequential, no matter how neutral, and Tajfel's work showed that it wasn't really the influence of demagogues and despots and autocratic leaders and fascists who very much benefit from the grouping up of people over their anxieties and prejudices. The grouping up takes place as a more of a bottom-up process, and there is no minimal thing for this to take place. In his studies, they used dots and paintings and things like that to show that people will just group up over any concept or idea or shared identifier that says we're an us and we're not of them. And once this happens, all sorts of groupish behavior will emerge that leads to a specific kind of motivated reasoning, a desire to shape the world so that future outcomes favor us more than they favored them. Even if those outcomes are less favorable for everyone, even if there's an alternative that would benefit both us and them. If there's any alternative that only benefits us and not them, that's usually the one we go for. Another big idea explored in the paper is Allport's contact hypothesis, a model put forth in his landmark 1954 book, the nature of prejudice, which proposed interaction among people who belong to different groups reliably reduces prejudice, but only when that interaction isn't fraught with conflict. There's an idea of something called like true contact, and that's the kind of contact that changes minds. But for that contact to take place, certain conditions must be met and not necessarily in order. Those conditions are members must meet regularly especially at work under conditions of equal status it's the conditions of equal status that matters there second they must share common goals and if they don't know they have those goals they should be made aware of those third they must routinely cooperate to meet those goals fourth they must engage in informal interactions so that's meeting one another outside of mandated or official contexts like at one another's homes or at public events. And finally, when people are oppressed, the concerns of the oppressed must be recognized and addressed by some sort of authority, especially one that writes laws. And then there's reactants. So this is something I've talked about a lot on the show. We've explored through many different angles, but never directly just this idea reactance. And it's an extremely important aspect of therapy, but also any situation where someone is trying to reach out to another person, conflict negotiation, persuasion, facilitation, any context where you're seeking better outcomes among people who disagree or who feel that us versus them framing or just want advice or help. Often these situations feature a person who is suggesting something to another person and this is where reactance comes into play it's an innate bodily automatic visceral response to the perceived threat to one's behavioral freedom you may have felt this quite a bit as a teenager when you felt like your parents were telling you what to do telling you how to live and so you pushed away you recoiled you rebelled it's the essence of that unhand me you fools feeling when we feel that rebellious urge bubbling up inside us, when we get the sense that our agency has been lost or is being reduced in some way. As they say in the literature, when we enter that state, when we feel like some stimulus is threatening our agency, which can happen just via the suggestion we should change our minds about something, simply because the other person or some other group wants us to, especially if they say we ought to, or we should be a shame we haven't done so already. Even when the intentions of the person making that suggestion are good, even when the person who is being told all this truly is factually incorrect or engaging in harmful behavior or is exhibiting prejudice or they have some sort of prejudiced attitude or belief and someone's trying to get them to see that. All these opportunities for change just get pushed aside, thrown away, dumped into the ocean because at a level deeper than articulation or argumentation at some primal foundational level all of this is getting interpreted getting translated getting heard as i don't care what you want or think or feel you should do this because i want you to do this that can be interpreted as a threat and the person whose mind you're trying to change will then become motivationally aroused as they say in the psychological parlance to engage in stimulus-reducing behavior. In other words, reactance makes people very upset and they will push back. And if you push back, which we often do, you'll push back a little bit harder and then they'll push back harder still. And then the whole interaction will devolve into anger and insults and defensiveness on both sides because reactance begets reactance. A lot of our knowledge about reactants comes from therapy, where it's very well understood and very much avoided because when clients who want help sense some sort of coercion or manipulation may be afoot, they often instinctively seek to regain their freedom over their own behavior by doubling down on that behavior. And the sad result can be a true increased preference for the very thing they came to therapy to escape. And thanks to reactants, they may leave more likely to engage in the harmful behaviors for which they came to therapy in the first place to address. In other words, we don't necessarily want to react in this way. Reactance isn't something we choose to do. But thanks to the inescapable nature of this psychological phenomenon, if a therapist triggers reactance, the client can leave off worse than they were before they came and sat on that therapist's couch. So here's the takeaway for what we're about to talk about. If you are trying to change someone's mind and you generate reactants, you will lose out on the opportunity to change that person's mind. So with all of this well-established, how does this apply to this new research? What does it have to say about all this? Well, here's Michelle below again.
1: So I'm a professor of economics, and I'm mostly, so my area of research is in behavioral economics, mostly. Uh, So that means I'm interested in people's behavior. And I'm also, as part of that, part of an important determinant of behavior is actually what people believe. Um, and so what they believe about, you know, what certain paths might mean for them, what certain... I'm, I'm looking at, you know, many, many things, like I'm looking at uh, people's, people's sort of career paths, I'm looking at uh, dietary choices, uh, and I'm also you now sort of wondered about, um, indeed, pe- people's political opinions.
0: Political opinions. This led Below to look into polarisation and all the other phenomena and motivations and influences and incentives that motivate our cognition in very significant ways. As polarization on just about everything is on the rise, more and more topics that otherwise would be neutral and evidence-based will become polarized. And that means topics that weren't political become political. And once something becomes political, it becomes debatable. And as recent studies suggest, Americans are becoming more affective. Which is to say, Americans are becoming more and more likely on both sides to see people on the other side as selfish, hypocritical, and more or less the source of everything that's bad. On more and more issues, the reason we can't seem to move forward is because of them.
1: I was actually in the UK just at the time of Brexit, you know, the Brexit vote, and then I moved to the United States when uh, Trump got elected, so I was very much in in the middle of uh, uh, a lot of uh, political discussions around uh, divisions. And I thought it was interesting to try to think about what can we uh, contribute as social scientists, what can we think about in terms of interventions that might be fruitful to uh, perhaps help people communicate, creating some kind of um, uh, environment where people might find it more conducive to engage with each other.
0: So, Below and her team reviewed the literature on divisiveness and polarization and argumentation and disagreement and found that while there was plenty of research describing how this happens and what happens when it does, there wasn't a lot of research into how to reduce polarization and divisiveness and group settings a lot of description not a whole lot of prescription
1: and so the angle that we took in the research here was to explore the fact that if we make it more salient to people that they actually share share a lot of important principles share you know a a lot of common grounds that might actually help and one of them might be indeed some kind of um so realization that you have a you have common grounds.
0: So building on the principles mentioned earlier and following in Allport's footsteps, they thought it might be possible to add another tenet to the contact hypothesis.
1: Well, how can I actually make people realize that they really share, you know, some basic common human values? And that's how we thought, well, why don't we have them sort of go through the basic human principles. These are the ones that the United Nations sort of define, you know, as part of their declaration.
0: And this is a real thing, if you've never heard of it, the United Nations has a universal declaration of human rights. And Below and her team thought, let's pull from that. They asked 2,500 participants to rate on a scale from zero to 10 how much they agreed or disagreed with each of the 24 statements in that declaration. But without mentioning that the items came from the United Nations Declaration. They then reduced that down to the five items people tended to agree on the most. And here they are. Number one, no one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Slavery and slave trade shall be prohibited in all their forms. Number two, no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of property. Number three, everyone has the right to freedom of peaceably assembling and association Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. That's number four. And number five, everyone has the right to freely participate in the cultural life of the community, to enjoy the arts, and to share in scientific advancement and its benefits. And they also asked people to mark how much they agreed or disagreed with five items from the USA Hello list of common cultural values related to politeness in the United States. And those are, one, Wait your turn when waiting in line. Two, say please when you ask for something. Three, say thank you to acknowledge service, kindness, or the receipt of something. Four, arrive on time. Don't be late for classes or gatherings or appointments. And five, refrain from talking loudly in quiet settings. That includes on your cell phone and movies, plays, or other quiet or focused communal settings. Most people very much agree with all of the things I just numbered strong 7, eight, nines, and 10s on all of these things. So we have an established foundation of shared values in all these regards. So with that set aside, they then pulled into the study three wedge issues, abortion, immigration, and gun control. And they found in the polling that when it comes to these issues, if the proposition is abortion should be legal in most or all cases, of Republicans say yes, and 75% of Democrats say yes. On immigration, the proposition is the number of immigrants allowed in the country should be decreased. 62% of Republicans say yes, 25% of Democrats. And on gun control, when it comes to are you in favor of much stricter laws and policies and regulations, 29% of Republicans say yes, and 65% of Democrats say yes. So at this point in the study, we have these shared values and these very differing attitudes on three wedge issues. And they wanted to make sure that when they went into the next part of the study, they didn't generate any reactants. So at each step going forward, people were reminded that they were in control of their participation, that everything was opt-in, and they always had the choice to stop or to proceed, or as they put it, accept an opportunity to engage with others who think differently which is what this study is all about. So how did they do that? Here's Michelle.
1: We had first uh, done quite a lot of work before to uh, to collect basically recordings of Americans who express their opinions about various things like abortion, gun laws, and immigration. Uh, and we said, well, it seems you have a strong opinion on this. So um, would you like to actually express your view for someone else to listen? Um, and People were actually really. It was a very nice experience. Actually, I was very impressed by how you know people people actually articulated their arguments um, clearly and in a way that was you know we we did have a a, a few people who uh, who uploaded a bit weird things, but not that many. <laughs> and um,
0: <clears throat> how did you record those? Uh- uh, those conversations that's, that's, that in itself seems like a tremendous undertaking
1: yes so what we decided is to ask people to record something on their phone and then to actually upload it so we we of course had to work a lot to make that as user friendly as possible so, uh, so mm-hmm. we had a, a lot of sort of you know they had to go through uh, multiple stages that were telling them step by step how they should do that uh, but you know nowadays with the technologies we have Everybody knows how to record either a video or something on their phone, and then they could
0: upload it. So here's the idea. First, thousands of Americans record their views on immigration, abortion, and gun control. Then, thousands of Americans are given the opportunity to listen to those recordings of other Americans expressing their views on those topics. And much to the scientists' surprise, More than two thirds of people said they would love to hear those views. Then they identified the core values that all these people shared. And then the group was randomly divided. Half were shown those results. They learned that they shared those core values, those common views on human rights and social etiquette. Then in both groups, each person could click a button to listen to someone expressing opposing views on those three wedge issues abortion gun control immigration and if they wished to continue they could click the button again and again and they could stop any time. and then when they felt like they were done people of both groups were asked a second time to express their views and whether or not they had changed their minds in any way and so what did they find all that after this break Twenty-five and one. Thirty-seven thousand, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. Thirty-seven thousand. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. Twenty-five. NetSuite turns twenty-five this year. Twenty-five? Twenty-five years One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program... It's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing. Absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash smart. You get it for free. That's NetSuite dot com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. Before we get into the results of the study, I want to play this little bit of audio here that is from my conversation with Michelle below the lead researcher on this new study this part of the conversation i was asking her about reactants because i'm of course obsessed with this of late and i just wanted to know what she thought about the very idea that they were trying to avoid that and the idea itself reactants so here's that it's intuitively it makes sense but in the actual pattern that is described in the literature the brim literature is the uh, uh a person senses that their freedom is being reduced or threatened and you know, freedom can mean all sorts of things and they may already have that taking place in their life in some other way. Um, there may have, they may have an underlying sense that their freedom is already under threat from other sources or other situations or our histories they've had with that person they're interacting with or on this topic they're they're expecting it. So they're already starting to feel a little bit of what they call motivational arousal, which is such a great psychological term. Uh, their emotions are getting stronger in the direction that motivates a person to not receive that stimulus anymore. The stimulus that says, I feel my freedom is under threat. And one way to do that is say, I don't want to talk to you anymore. That's one way to stop receiving that stimulus. Another way is to push back in a way that says, get out of here, go away from me, then I will no longer receive the stimulus. Um, Another way is just argue really strongly with the person so they stop saying the things that make you feel like your freedom is under it. So there's all these things that you, you, it's it's such a stepwise algorithm. Stimulus, source, then reactants comes out of this motivation to reduce the input, and then it just kind of stops there because if the input goes away, then the algorithm stops. has no need to perform. But if it remains, then you engage again and you get into these loops. I find that one of the most compelling things you say in the paper is that It's very simple. People are more open to changing their views if they feel they are choosing whether or not to engage or to continue the the conversation. And it's one of the most, strangely, and I, I can tell you this from lots of experiences talking about this with people and doing workshops and things, it's one of those things that, yeah, that makes sense when somebody tells it to you, but it's really difficult in the subjective experience to not engage in the kind of behavior that will cause a person to push away from you. And it's hard to flip the bit in your head to say I need to c- constantly make it aware to the other party that they're in control of this. They, mm-hmm. They're choosing to engage. Mm-hmm. They're choosing to continue. They're choosing to entertain my ideas and so on. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there and see what your thoughts are on, that, on just that one particular thing, reactants.
1: Yes, so I, I completely agree, and actually, throughout the research I do across different domains, it's something that I I think is coming back really in many different domains. So, in the domain of ideas, exchange of ideas is very strong. In the domain of diet, if you start, you know, telling people what they should eat or not eat, it uh, tends to generate, you know, trigger some some reactants. Uh, we have also done work with. Um, uh, job seekers, where we ask them to actually consider different occupations than the ones they are uh, used to, and we usually try to do that in a way of saying, "Look, these are possible options." You know, nothing. You don't. This is just, you know, recommendations, um, and that tends to pass a lot better than if you actually try to indeed um, be paternalistic, really. Uh, so this is a little bit. Uh, I think the issues is that. In social sciences, we have lots of ideas of how one one might actually be be recommending things to people, but we don't think as much about how to recommend, and I think it is quite uh, quite key. Um, Yeah, so this is sort of my, uh, I agree that this idea, we were actually really interested in studying this willingness to engage in this context, Because in many, many experiments, in many studies that test the contact hypothesis, they basically more or less force the contact onto people. We are going to mix you up with other people and we are going to mix. But at the end, people still choose, of course, they choose whether they listen, they choose whether (laughs) they are interested in talking to the, the people they are supposed to be talking to. So oh, this element of choice we thought was very interesting and we were amazed I mean I had never expected this and so maybe this is the the also the a little bit an optimistic uh, uh finding here is that uh, we find that the large majority of people is in fact willing to listen in that context
0: I could tell in the in your paper how much this lit some optimism with with it is it's a testament to how pessimistic and cynical we've become across the board it, at all different cultures all different every different country everywhere we go we're like I, I don't but thanks to the internet being a place where we do a lot of our interacting like what's the point nobody wants to well nobody will listen to me and, and you know reactance is also part of that like I want you to listen to like I want to be heard uh, it's it's very important there's no, how can we ever do anything if you don't know what I'm thinking and feeling or why I'm thinking and feeling something. I'm looking at my notes here again. The you found that more than two thirds of of the your participants were willing to listen to a view opposite to theirs. This eagerness to hear what other people have to say, to hear, hear a a a clear statement of where they're coming from, and the curiosity that comes part of that—that that is really amazing. I I also was like, oh, two thirds. Wow, that's. <laughs> that's wild
1: exactly and actually we, this is why we were also interested whether the, the treatments we were implementing so uh, making people aware that they share common grounds might actually raise this and we don't find that actually we don't find much effect on that we find effects on whether people change their views or not but not on, on the willingness to engage and we think it's because the baseline is actually really high already
0: Those are all my l- big interrupt you tangents, please. Uh, so all that being said, tell me about the work and what you found.
1: Um, yes. So what we did is we did this experiment with 2,500 uh, Americans that we recruited and uh, we implemented our experiment there. And then we uh, analyzed this with uh, basically looking at, at the different uh outcomes we were interested in. So one outcome we were interested in is whether they were more willing to engage or not. And then the other uh, outcome we were interested in is how their views change, of course. And what we found is that uh, indeed those, uh, so the willingness to engage is very high. Uh, more than two-thirds is willing to listen to, uh, to someone else's view. The treatment itself doesn't affect the willingness to engage, but it does affect how far you are from five on this scale from zero to 10, particularly on the topic of abortion and immigration. And so what's interesting is that one shouldn't think that we've moved people in a particular direction. We didn't make them all become more conservative or more Republicans or more, uh, you know, uh, liberals. Um, in fact, it's everybody who's listening to someone else's view might uh, might change. We find that, Ninety uh, percent. When we ask them, "Did you change your view after listening to the recording?" Ninety percent says no, uh, but ten percent says yes. And again, you have to imagine this is a thirty-second recording. It's very short. So you know, ten percent. You would you know you could move elections with ten percent of people. Change. You
0: can move elections with ten percent cascade effects can take place off of a much lower number that single person is going to talk to other people and talk about the fact that they changed their body the this is 30 seconds and it's just audio and you're not face to face with the person we could assume that they there would be it could be more impactful in a different context longer conversation with somebody you already have established trust with all these variables can be messed with it actually blows my mind just i listen to 30 seconds of audio and 10% of 2,500 people were like, hmm, never saw it that way. You've changed, bye-bye. <laughs> That's, that blows my mind. And also, this other thing you're talking about, people moving away from the poles and toward the ambivalence spot in the attitude is really fascinating to me, which is something you saw even more of. Am I right?
1: Exactly. So what we see is that it's the people who, are, who started at the extreme are actually in the treated groups going more towards the center. So it's interesting that it's not just, you know, some kind of regression to the mean effect because we have the control group, right? So so you could imagine that, yes, maybe people report a nine and then you ask them again and then, of course, they might be more regressing to the mean just mechanically almost, but that's not what we find. So it's really relative to the control group who is also asked that questions. The ones who are asked about, uh, who are, sort of aware that the other person is sharing really basic principles with them is then moving more towards that person moving moving more towards the center and maybe one thing that i would want to say is that so we listened of course to all the recordings ourselves and that alone made me you know uh, optimistic as well because these that we we actually specifically asked people who reported Relatively um, extreme opinions, so opinions that were, say, on the scale either above seven or below three. And so, even on the topic of, say, for example, abortion, it's not that you hear people saying, "Well, I think you know, I want to be pro-life, no matter what, even if it's incest or you know." uh, you, you actually hear people saying, "I think pretty sensible things in a sense." No, they are saying. Well, you know, there are circumstances where this might not be actually uh, this might be an issue, but uh, you know, they basically are, are I think maybe a lot more uh, uh, middle ground than I would have expected.
0: I I often feel like when I look back at people like Allport and Touchfield, all these people like uh, from the from back in the day, like like they were hoping that they had hope, but I don't know if they had. I don't know how much optimism they had, but I know they had hope. Just the fact that they were like, you know, we can study this, right? We can, like, apply science and scientific methods to stuff like this. I can tell you from doing so many interviews on, like, radio and podcasts and TV just to p- promote this book that I've got. For a lot of people, that's surprising. People who aren't, like, in the the, the bubbles of uh, science and science journalism. The idea that, wait, well, you can scientifically study opinions and morals and values and attitudes. And, and you can study persuasion and conversation and arguments. Like that is oddly something i did not know that in, in itself would be shocking to people or exciting to people the idea that there are scientists working on things like this that have become problems for us this new information ecosystem we find ourselves within and the weirdness of polarization and all that there's just been a there's a real sense among in a lot among a lot of people that well that's just how life is and it's kind of weird and, and and the idea that there are scientists who study stuff like that And the things that the evidence they produce can be applied to the overarching problems of how we deal with our problems themselves through conversation, debate, deliberation, politics, and so on is something that has stunned a lot of people. I'm very eager to tell people about your research just to keep adding to that, put another log on that fire of, oh, I can be, I can be optimistic. I find that really compelling. Yes, and
1: one one other thing that I would want to say, and this is again coming from you know, uh, it's, it's not me who is, is claiming this, but there are a number of uh, social scientists and psychologists at the moment who are also pointing at the fact that, of course, you know, the media is, um, is talking about things that are, you know, interesting in a way, no? And what are the things that are interesting are the things where we don't necessarily agree on. There seems to be some interesting debates to be, you uh, to be, you know, indeed uh, discussed. And, and, and that I find interesting because then you realize, so for example, there's this very well-known word, value survey, uh, which has been conducted for many years and so on. And again, you know, when you go to a, a lot of, say, so fundamental values, like for example, you know, you shouldn't steal from your neighbor, you shouldn't, uh, you know, be aggressive towards, you know, others or, uh, you know, there are really, in fact, a lot of th- things that we agree on. And at the end, both social scientists and the media and what basically the whole society is going to be more focused and interested in things that are still not settled. And and social scientists are doing the same, right? So all the papers we put out are about issues, um, which then makes makes I think means that it's not an, it's not surprising that. We have this impression that there are so many issues and, and that there is polarization and that we are so divided on everything, because this is what we focus on. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I'm not. I don't want to downplay the divisions because I think they are there, uh, but I think that they are maybe um, accentuated uh, because we actually have this constant perception that we are divided. And so again, I think in sociology and economics now there is also a lot of work on uh, what is called this this work on identity and, um, and you know, the fact that people you know, tend to want to associate with uh, with a group. It's something that is very you know human. It's a it's a very basic uh, human need, and that means that you know you are going to be somehow identifying with a particular cluster of ideas and so on, and then you go with that cluster and. Uh, and that is not fostering uni- yeah, unity, of course, yeah.
0: Yeah, what would you say is your overall takeaway from here? And what do you think, uh, what kind of, uh, what does this make you think about future research in this regard?
1: So I'm interested in, in as you said, what we have is a very sort of a proof of concept almost. Um, you know, of course, you would like to test this willingness to engage and how indeed emphasizing common grounds may actually be really influential if you have, Maybe longer interactions, if you have people uh, having the opportunity to actually answer and so on. Um, so that would be what it would inspire me. Um, but at the moment, indeed, we just have this very sort of uh, proof of concept that people are willing to engage and that they are willing to change their views if they know that other people share important principles with them.
0: It's the best. Oh my God. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you for setting this up so quickly. Thanks for putting this paper out at just the most timely moment, and thank you for reaching out. I, I, I am across the board immensely grateful for everything you've Brilliant. done.
1: Thank you so much. It was great, and I also look forward to hear all about the, 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 the books and everything because I, I started, you know, getting into this, and it's really fascinating. So thank you so much. One, two, three, one, two, three.
0: That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find Michelle below at B E L O T M I C H E L E on Twitter at B E L O T M I C H E L E. For links to everything that we talked about, including that research paper head to youarenotsosmart.com. There's a link in the show notes inside your podcast player straight to all that. And you can also find a link to the homepage for How Minds Change with all the podcasts and other places I've been appearing and giving interviews and so on. Just scroll to the bottom of that page. And you'll find a link to my new newsletter, which I'll be posting to this week and from here on out. And for all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, Audible, Amazon, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also, we're on Facebook slash you Are Not so Smart. And if you would like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to Patreon.com slash You Are Not so Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you this show ad-free. For the higher amounts, you can get posters and T-shirts and signed books and other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is banjo Apocalypse. And if you really, really want to support the show, the easiest thing you can do, and probably the best thing, is just tell people about it. Tell everybody you know about the show, talk about it on social media, share episodes that meant something to you, and check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode.